is Jude and I'm from 530 Macquarie Park and I will be reading 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 1 to 6 uh, which you can find on page 245. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. We're now going to um, jump to 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, which is just the next page over. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done? And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Hi, I'm Eric. I go to the 7 p.m. at Kirribilli, and this reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 17 and 35 through 42. These can be found on page 247 of your Black Bibles. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked for my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant 
with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan replied. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed to you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him and saying, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only David and Jonathan knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is a witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Well, good evening, 7 p.m. I'm Ed. I'm the congregational pastor here. Good evening to those joining us online tonight. Uh, if you're new or visiting here with us, a very well, warm welcome to you. I'd love to meet you. I stand at the back at the end and love you to come and uh, introduce yourself after the service. Well, tonight we're looking at love and hate of the Lord's anointed, love and hate of the one that God has chosen to be his special king. Jesus asked a question of his disciples. It was one of the last questions he asked them. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? It's the most important question you could ever answer. Do you love me? Well, uh, there's a gentleman on my table at Alpha here in Kirribilli on a Tuesday night whose wife recently became a Christian and he comes along on, on Tuesday nights and he said that one of the reasons, uh, oh, he's been coming along to church from time to time, he said one of the reasons that he wouldn't want to become a Christian is because he'd have to become like one of the ministers who stands at the front of church, gets all emotional and says that they love Jesus. I'm sorry for putting you off Jesus. But let me tell you about Steve. Steve, if Jesus asked, do you love me? He probably wouldn't let the words slip from his mouth. He works in construction. He's, building, he's a building guy. He sits in church with his arms crossed. But he gets up every morning, an hour before his family. He reads his Bible. He spends quiet time with God. He 
checks in on blokes at church, sees how they're going with loving their wives and caring for their kids. He is a man of great faith. He shows by his actions that he loves Jesus. If Jesus said, do you love me? He'd probably say, you bet. And then there's Bruce. Jesus asked, do you love me, Bruce? Bruce would say, for almost all of my life I haven't. But because of my wife's persistent prayers, because of the love of this church here in Kirribilli, I've got to this late stage of my life and I've decided to take the crown off my head and give it over to Jesus. Because I've, I've ruled my life my own way. But now I see that Jesus is God's king and, and I want to trust him. And I don't have much life left to live or much to give to Jesus. So Bruce asks his uh, attendants at his nursing home to bring him to church as often as he can so he can be with his wife in the presence of God and his people. Jesus said, do you love me, Bruce? He'd say, I didn't for all of my life, but now I do. Or Jenny, do you love me, Jenny, a family member of mine? She would say, I used to, but not anymore. You know, these days, my career success and all my financial stability, I don't need you anymore. In fact, now I look favorably upon Christianity as a good moral compass, but I like to mock people who are too intense about Jesus. And I like to go around family gatherings and undermine any conversations that Ed is having with my family members to see where they're at in their faith with God. Jenny would say that she's sort of favorably disclosed towards Christianity, but if you checked her heart, what's there is certainly not love for Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus would probably call it hatred. Tim Keller wrote these words. He said, Jesus cannot just be liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. Jesus can't just be liked. We must either kill him or crown him. And that is 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20. We meet Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan's esteem of David as the Lord's anointed is put side by side with his father Saul's envy of David as the Lord's anointed. And the choice is presented to you and I, the readers. What will you choose? Will it be love or hate towards the Lord's anointed? Whose side are you on? For how you relate to God's anointed, to his chosen king, the one that he has set up in the world, is ultimately an expression of how you respond to God himself. So love and hate for the Lord's anointed. Let's start tonight with Jonathan. Jonathan loved David as the Lord's anointed. Jonathan was the oldest son of King Saul. That makes him the crown prince, the next in line to the throne. And we first meet Jonathan in chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, when he defies his father and goes out with his armor bearer to start a fight with the Philistines. In faith, he says to his armor bearer, let's go and attack this Philistine outpost and see if the Lord is with us. So they run at them, turn them into an absolute fizz. They slay 20 of the Philistines and the ones who escape turn the whole Philistine army on themselves. And in faith, a great victory is won that day through Jonathan, Saul's son. He was a man of faith and trust in God. But he saw in David a similar spirit of faith. 
when he saw David go out and fight that faith battle against Goliath, he must have seen in him that same spirit of trust and and confidence in the power and might of the God of Israel. So much so that we read in chapter 18, verse 1, I'd love you to have 1 Samuel open with you, page 245. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. You know, I'd suggest there's a number of people here, just like me, whose hearts go out towards Jesus and and who went there first before they'd done any other reading, before they'd done any other inquiring. You You just heard Jesus speak and you wanted to hear more. His word was open and you wanted to read it more. His presence was there and you were drawn towards him. I loved last week when Alejandro got up uh, and, and recounted that story of talking to his mate saying, I think, I think he's the one. I think Jesus is the one. And he is the one, Alejandro. He, he is the one. And, and just our hearts are drawn towards him, irresistibly drawn towards him with affection. And faith towards God, towards his anointed, ultimately towards great David's greater son, Jesus, the great anointed one, faith in him will always be accompanied by some sort of affection towards him. Sure, we're not always going to be as gushing as Paul up the front with his tears and his like, passion for Jesus and me with my evangelistic zeal, and, but your own way. You're going to have your own love for Jesus that expresses itself in affection towards him. And if you're lacking that, Spend more time with him and ask God for it. God, warm my heart towards you. He'd love to, to answer that prayer for you. So David, uh, Jonathan had great affection for David. You know, sadly, there are some people you'll speak to and even scholars who will write about the sexualization of this relationship between David and Jonathan. They'll say that because these two men loved one another so deeply, embraced wet together, kissed, that that is an expression of God's blessings of same-sex unions within the the Bible. Yet David himself was already married at this point, and it's such a 21st century thing to do, to sexualize a very real and everyday experience of Middle Eastern people. Uh, Ben, who is one of our mission partners here at 7 p.m., he works amongst Muslim people in southwest Sydney, And what did he say about the hardest thing about COVID for him was not kissing his Muslim friends because that's what they do. My father is from Argentina. We kiss and hug every time we say hello and say goodbye. And to turn this moment of deep, bitter agony between Jonathan and David into a sexual event is just such a modern, contemporary thing to do. They were deep, deep friends. There was a beautiful, rich connection between them. It's a great example of how rich Christian friendship can be, how deep, satisfying, fulfilling we can have friendships amongst us as God's people. But Jonathan didn't just see David as a great friend. He saw him as more than that. He saw in him the blessing and favour of God. I've been pondering to myself, do you think that Jonathan knew that there had been a private anointing by the prophet Samuel of David? Certainly, David's brothers knew they were there that day when Samuel anointed David. But I wonder if word had spread and even made its way to the crown prince. 
Well, what certainly had spread was the good news about David. He was a man highly favoured in the eyes of God. As you read these chapters, chapters 18 to 20, I'd love you to do that, to read over them and to be following along in this series in Samuel. And if you find reading hard, I've been really enjoying listening to 1 Samuel in my Version Bible app. Uh, the NIV UK is much nicer because of the nice British accent uh, rather than the uh, American twang of the NIV. Uh, but but uh, apologies. Uh, sorry, Betsy. Oh. God bless America. Um, we'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll have a little meeting. Talk that one through. Um, <laughs> but... As you read it, let's get back to David. As you read it, it'll become so evidently clear. God's favour is on David. Three times, just in chapter 18, it refers to God being with David. Four times it refers to David's successes. Six times people are said to love David, including all of Israel and Judah. The point is just so clear and so evident that God was with David. And so... As, as Jonathan's, uh, so Jonathan saw in David more than just a friend, he saw the blessing of God on him. So he does this interesting thing in chapter 18, verse 4. Jonathan took off his robe and gave it to David. He also took off his tunic and gave it to David, his sword, his bow, and even his belt and gave it to David. Was it that he didn't like the, the shepherd boy's fashion sense? I think it was something deeper. Because as we turn over to chapter 23, verse 16 and 17, 23, 16, David's on the run again from Saul. He's hiding out in the desert and Jonathan goes out to him. Verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. I will be second to you. Jonathan was awaiting a crown, but he abducted his right to be the king because he saw in David the true anointing of God. He saw this was God's chosen one. So he decided to be second to him, took that crown off and gave it to David and said, you are the one in whom, who's finding favour in the eyes of the Lord. And in the same way, God has set up great David's greatest son, Jesus, to be the king of all of humanity, the king of the earth. And just as Jonathan relinquished his crown and gave it to David, so too the Bible exhorts you and I to relinquish the crown of our lives and hand it over to Jesus. You know, we, none of us here are crown princes or princesses, at least I haven't met anyone in our church who is. But we have all climbed onto the throne of our lives. And we've said to God, Stuff you, God. I'm in charge here. I'm the boss of this life. I'll say and do what I want, when I want, with who I want. But the Bible invites us to repent, to relinquish our crown and give it back to Jesus because then we'll be on the right side of history. As 1 Samuel plays out, of course, God's favour is with David and David becomes the king. Jonathan put himself on the right side of David. As the Bible story plays out and as human history has played out, Jesus, God's anointed, has become the king of heaven and earth. And if you want to be on the right side of history, then you must be second to Jesus. 
You must give your crown to him and say, you be king and I will follow. We must let Jesus rule and be king. Well, Jonathan's esteem of David has been deliberately placed side by side with Saul's envy of David. Because in in Saul, there was a man who would not relinquish the crown. Saul had been king, but he had been rejected and he refused to give up the kingship. So let's go to Saul's hatred of David. It started with jealousy. Saul hated David and he would not surrender kingship of his life or the kingship of Israel over to David. We read back in chapter 15, verse 26, 1526, that Saul had been rejected by God because of his refusal to trust in God's word, to obey God's word, and to wait on the Lord. So the prophet Samuel says to him in 1526, I will not go back with you, Saul. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Rather than repent, which was an option for Saul at that point, he reached out, grabbed the prophet Samuel, and sought to to reclaim the throne. But all he got was a piece of his robe which tore And so Samuel said to him, verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, Saul, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Ouch. It's got to hurt a proud man like Saul. So he's on the lookout for one better than him, one more faithful than him, one more full of love and obedience towards God than him. And in this young shepherd boy, David, he begins to see that maybe this is that one. David went out last week, we recall, he went out and fought a faith battle against Goliath. Saul was the tallest man in all of Israel. That should have been his fight. It should have been his faith. The little shepherd boy went out and fought it for him. And after the, after the Israelites had fought a great battle and defeated many Philistines, they came back And the women and the children went out to greet the victorious warriors and they sang a song, a song that got in Saul's head and got under his skin. It's there in chapter 18, verse 7. Here's the chorus. Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul's envy, his jealousy of David, quickly spiraled into outright hostility against him and attempted murder of him. In fact, it was just the very next day that an evil spirit from God, verse 10, came forcefully on Saul. Saul had formerly been filled with the Spirit of God, but he is now a man under God's judgment, and so he's tormented by this Spirit. And uh, we might recall that David had been employed to offer music therapy to Saul when he had these episodes. So David was there playing his lyre, which is like a harp or a little guitar, and Saul picks up one of his spears, and because he's a bad shot, he throws it, but he misses him. And David must have thought to himself, wow, this guy's got really bad mental health problems. 
And maybe he's a very kind-hearted person, very trusting it seems. And maybe he thought he doesn't like the song. So he changed the song and Saul goes again a second time. And all of a sudden, David knows that his life is deeply under threat. What follows is six different attempts of Saul to put David to death. Saul thought to himself, it's not a good look for the king to wipe out one of his best soldiers. So I'll get the Philistines to do that. So Saul looked at his battle maps and saw where the battlefronts were. He looked for the most Gallipoli-like battlefronts where they were going to be up against it and would definitely lose. And he sent David to those battlefronts. But because the Lord's favour was with David, he kept winning the battles and he kept winning Israel's hearts. In fact, he won everyone's hearts so much that he began to win Saul's daughter's hearts. His daughter Michal fell in love with David. And so when Michal came to Saul and said, Daddy, there's a boy I like, well then Saul saw this as a great opportunity to take vengeance on David. He, he put a bride price on his daughter Michal, which is a custom that is still practiced around the world today in agricultural societies. Often a, a cow will be offered or maybe a sum of money in other societies. Well, Saul put as a bride price a hundred Philistine foreskins. What a sicko. He could have picked belts. He could have picked helmets. He could have picked battle shields. But because the Lord's favour was with David, David went out and he got 200 Philistine foreskins. And he brings them back. And these are in the days before plastic bags. I can't bear to think how he carried them. But he brings them back and he throws them out before Saul. And you can imagine the humiliation as Saul has to offer his own daughter to David. Well, then Saul calls a cabinet meeting. He gets his officials and his son, Jonathan, together, and he says, we have one operation. Operation, kill Jesse's son. Jesse's son, David, must die. And Jonathan woos him and says, Father, you know, David has been a faithful soldier to you. You you must not kill him. Saul takes an oath. And so David is returned to his service and begins playing the lyre again. But again, another spear episode. Saul throws the spear, misses again. Third time, he has evaded the spear and he knows it's time to get out. He goes home to his wife, Michal, and she is a quick-witted, smart-thinking woman. She says, you must get out right away. She helps him out a window and out of the, city of the, out of the wall of the city and off into the distance, and she puts in his bed an idol and covers it with goat's hair at the top. And when Saul's henchmen arrive to kill David, she says, he's so sick, he's just sleeping it off. She buys him time, and he runs to Nioth at Ramah, where the prophet Samuel is is there. He goes there, and you can imagine him arriving. There's been seven attempts on his life. Imagine him getting to Samuel and saying, mate, you never told me this was part of the deal of being the anointed. Like When I was a shepherd boy, you could have given me warning that this is what I'd be up for. But that has been the case for the Lord's chosen people from before David, in his time and after him. Those whom the Lord chooses find themselves at odds, at war, running from those who hate the Lord and hate his anointed. It was true of David, it was true of the prophets, it was true of the great anointed one, Jesus. Jesus himself warned us that if they persecuted me, he said, 
they will persecute you also. So running for your life, being in danger, fearing those who are against you is a very normal experience of the people of God throughout the ages. But God will protect his people. God will protect his anointed. And so at Nioth, uh, David is there with Samuel, and Samuel is leading a, a, a prophetic worship service. And Samuel the prophet is prophesying, as are those with him. And as Saul's henchmen arrive to come and get David and arrest him, all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes forcefully upon them, and they themselves get caught up and begin to prophesy. So Saul sends another set of henchmen, and they start prophesying. And another, three times. <clears throat> so Saul, like any normal boss, says to himself, well, if you want something done properly, you've got to do it yourself. So he goes himself. And as he's heading off to Nioth at Ramah, all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes forcefully upon him. And he can't control himself. He just starts prophesying. And in this weird turn of events, Saul ends up completely undressed, naked in front of Samuel and the other prophets, prophesying all day, all night. What was he prophesying? We don't know. Was it maybe that David is the actual Lord's anointed? David's the king? Whatever he was saying, it was from the Spirit of God who speaks the truth of God. So it must have been truth about God. But the point is very clear that God will protect his anointed and nothing and no one will stop them from accomplishing his purposes. So it's come in all sorts of means and fashions. Can you just grab my drink quickly, Alex? It comes in all sorts of fashions and, and ways for David. It was from a bad-aiming king who couldn't throw his spear properly. It happened because he had an attendant to the king, a, a, a political informant who helped him. He had a smart-thinking wife. He had the Holy Spirit coming upon others. But God was protecting his anointed. And I think the same was true of Jesus, wasn't it? I think of Jesus when he went to Nazareth, his hometown, and the people of Nazareth took great offense at him. They took him to the top of the hill that the town was built on. They wanted to throw him off. And all the gospel writers record is that Jesus slipped through them. Jesus got away and he escaped many times with his life because the Lord's protection was over his anointed until it was time for him to offer up his life for you and for me to actually pass out from under God's protection and take himself under God's judgment for you and I. But just as God has protected David and Jesus, so his protection extends to you and I as his chosen ones. Have you ever heard this comment? The Christian is immortal until they have finished Christ's work. The Christian is immortal until they've finished Christ's work. If you are doing work for God, you might face great danger. You could be on the run, you could be escaping for your life, but nothing and no one will stop you until you have accomplished God's work because nothing can stand in his way. It was true of Jesus, it was true of David. And David, when he was on the run from Saul over many years, he wrote psalms, some of them from caves, some of them from hideouts. And one of them was Psalm 34, and it has this beautiful line for us. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. 
That's a promise for you. The angel of the Lord encamps around you, his chosen one, and he will deliver you. Well, let's finish with Jonathan and love. Jesus said, do you love me? Jonathan was a man who loved the Lord's anointed. And his love didn't just play out in affection and a warm heart or in abdication, giving up his crown. His love played out in action. Because true love will express itself in our actions and our deeds. So chapter 20 that we had read to us wonderfully by Eric uh, recounts this story of Jonathan making a covenant with, with David to say that he would be bound, stronger than a handshake, he would be bound with a life-binding agreement to David and committed to him. And then it shows in his actions as he defends the Lord's anointed, as he promotes his cause in, in Israel. And the same is, is an invitation for you and I as we declare with our lives and our actions that we love the Lord and his anointed Jesus, that our lives will have to play out in actions of love, in commitment to Jesus, in standing firm for him, no matter the cost. And it may be very dangerous. For Jonathan, he himself found himself on the other end of one of Saul's spears. Saul threw a spear at him, trying to kill him. But he continued to stand by the Lord's anointed. And he continued to defend him and promote his cause. And the same will be asked of you and I. Will you stand firm for Jesus? I was very moved by the sort of rousing sermons we had on David and Goliath last week. And I went out to lunch with some friends for Mother's Day. And one of my friends just dropped a really deep Jesus curse in the middle of lunch. And I just felt like David. I just went at him. and I was like, do not use Jesus' name like that. And the whole sort of mood just really shifted and it was major awkward. But (laughs) it's the least I can do for Jesus, isn't it? Just to stand up, defend his name, his cause. Stand up for him in your friendships, in public. Stand up for him. Stand up for his people. Uh, The scriptures exhort us to give double honour to those who, who work and minister amongst us. Do you give double honour to Betsy, myself, to to our ministry team, to Justin and Rowena and those who serve amongst us? Do you give double honour to your senior pastor, Paul Dale, as you talk about church and directions and all your better ideas for how things could work better around here? Do you honour those who lead us? And by extension, do you honour those who lead our Anglican church? I love that I'm part of the Anglican church. It is a a great gospel institution. But do you honour those who lead us, who've been appointed by God as archbishops and bishops. If you've been reading in the papers and in the news this week, it's been a very difficult week in the Anglican Church. There's been lots of discussion amongst the leaders, the bishops of our churches, around a biblical definition of marriage. And there's been a lot of fallout there. But as your friends maybe have been reading SMH and developing all their opinions around what the media says about it, do you throw your leaders under the bus or could you stand firm for them? Could you say, well, let me find out? Because the Archbishop Kanishka Rafael has um, he's sent an email around to all his clergy uh, with an explanation of what, what went on there, which he'd love us to share with you. So if you would like to receive that, come and let me know, and we can forward that on to you. And you can read and, and stand up for those who are standing for Christ in the midst of an ever-changing church world and church landscape. Well, friends... 
love and hate of the Lord's anointed. Love and hate of David by Jonathan and Saul has been set side by side for us in these three chapters of 1 Samuel to give us a choice. How will you respond to the Lord's anointed? Jonathan and Saul were members of the same family, cut from the same block. But what differentiated them was one was willing to relinquish his crown, the other would not repent and held on to it, and his envy, his jealousy, drove him to a life of murderous threats against the Lord's anointed and hatred of the Lord's anointed and the Lord himself. So friends, will you be like Jonathan? Will you let your heart go out in affection towards him? Will you give the crown of your life over to King Jesus? And will you stand firm, commit to Jesus, stand up for him, stand firm amongst his people, defend the cause and honour of Jesus in our church, in your society, in your, your friendships, in your workplace, in your family. Let's pray that God would fill our hearts with the kind of love that Jonathan's heart was filled with for David. Let's pray that we would love the Lord's anointed. Let's close in prayer. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, we love you. We pray from our hearts that you would give us more love for you. We see your favour all over the life of the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you've anointed him king over the world. We relinquish our crowns, Lord. We surrender to King Jesus as our king. Fill our hearts with loving affection for Jesus and help us take action in defending and promoting our king's cause wherever you place us remembering your power to protect and watch over us and keep us safe as we serve you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.